Hello all, I, um, this is Tim, and I am uh, currently actually sitting in my kitchen, and the reason I'm sitting in my kitchen recording this teaching is that I inadvertently uh, turned the recorder off um, on Sunday when I was supposed to be recording this teaching, and so um, in, a, in an effort to try to provide the teaching to those who weren't there, whether they were in Renewed Kids or out of town or whatever, um, <clears throat> I am going to try my best at, re- at tracing through the, the teaching that I did on Sunday um, in order to um, provide that. I think it was uh, something the Lord put on my heart, and I just want to make it accessible to those who didn't have the chance to be there. So um, first, I just want to pray for myself and for you in this, uh, in this, in this teaching. God, thank you uh, so much for your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would guide my heart and my mind that I would be in alignment with you, in alignment with your word, in alignment with your will. I pray that you would, that you'd open the hearts of those listening, and that you would give them grace to, to hear the things from your voice that are said, and and that they would, um, that they would have root in our in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. So uh, I'm not going to try to pretend I'm at the Boys and Girls Club in the gym. I'm going to just. Uh, um, go through the teaching as, as I recall things went and and also hopefully um, do a better job of communicating maybe things that didn't go so well. Um, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, I guess about four and four weeks, four and a half weeks ago at this point, um, JR reminded us that in God, holiness and, and love are in this perfect union, that there is no, um, there's no um, disunity between holiness and love in God. And then um, a couple of weeks ago, Doug described in, in um, detail how the Lord wants our holiness to impact our affections, not just our actions, that, that these, these expectations of the Lord go all the way down to our affections. Um, what I'd like to talk about um, that I think will be helpful is to talk about what our motivations might be to be holy um, if we're going to set ourselves apart and dedicate our lives and our families and our money and our health and our jobs, uh, etc., to the Lord, um, what is the motivation for that? What is an acceptable motivation for that? What is the highest motivation for that? So the, the takeaway message is that God um, most wants us to choose to be holy out of love, that he... Um, he has spoken in his word that he loves us and he calls us to to choose him and to be whole and to be holy because we are his. And I think if if you don't remember anything else from this teaching, if you can begin to think about holiness as belonging fully to the Lord, as being fully his, um, I think that can have good fruit in your life. Um, so I, I want to spend some time in 1 Peter, um, just a couple of verses at the beginning of 1 Peter, uh, and I'll substitute the, the, uh, the cities that Peter talks about for some that may be a little more, comfort, little more uh, familiar to you. So this is 1 Peter 1 and 2, um, with some slight modification. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the boroughs and townships of Montgomery and Bucks County who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So Peter is writing to these the elect. He's writing to God's people, and they're scattered all over the place, just like we're scattered. And he says that they have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. So in this scripture, you have all three members of the Trinity um, playing a role in, in God choosing, God foreknowing, the, the Spirit setting us apart, sanctifying us um, for obedience to Jesus. And then you have Jesus who offers his blood that we could be sprinkled with that. So what... Um, I think is so profound here that we're we're so numb to as Christians and we frequently forget about is that 
um, is this expression of being sprinkled with his blood. When the, when the listeners hear this, uh, when Peter wrote this, it would create an image for them of what happened in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and Leviticus where the, where the priests would be dedicated to the Lord. So the Aaron and his sons um, of, the, of the tribe of Levi were dedicated to the Lord and part of that ceremony was for them to put on their, their priestly garments, which were beautiful fabrics and just, they were gorgeous. So you just listen to the descriptions of them. And they involved headdressings, hats, and all sorts of, of garments and very, very um, clear definition of what those should look like. And, and then they would, part of the ceremony, they would come and they would put their hands on the head of, 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 a, of, a, of an oxen. And, um, and Moses would slit the, the throat of the oxen and, uh, and then begin to apply that blood to different um, portions of the tabernacle as part of the ceremony, not only to dedicate the tabernacle, but to dedicate the priests. Part of that ceremony involved um, uh, repeating this, this kind of gruesome uh, throat, throat slitting of, of a ram, and then the blood from that ram was applied to the ear and the and the hand the finger and the um and the toe of of the priests as part of their dedication and I don't claim to fully understand that but I I try to imagine what that was like with with blood being applied to me um from this animal and as Christians we're kind of used to talking about blood in this way but it's it's really you know quite um, almost gross when you read the description of the blood that, that was that was shed on that day and those days of, of dedication and how it was applied to the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, um, to the priests, to their clothing, to their sons. Because what, what the, another portion of this ceremony is that they would take the blood of the animal and they were literally sprinkling it. They were, they were put it on a... Uh, like a hyssop kind of a um, plant and they would flick it and this blood would come off this and just splatter across the the face and the garments uh, of the of the priests and as I think about that I it almost makes me shudder to think how I would feel how that would affect me if that was done to me and yet that was what it meant to be set apart and dedicated to the Lord as a priest. So when Peter writes this to the um, the Christians who were scattered around in, in the first century, he, he says um, that you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood and that imagery would fully hit them that they were literally being flicked with the blood of Christ. It was splattering them on these beautiful garments, on their face, on their skin. They could, they, I'm sure that that just, you know, was, was quite um, profound when they heard that. And the reason this was done um, for, the, for the priests was to dedicate them, to make them holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord. To, that they would belong to him. They were not made holy, and this ceremony did not go on because they were superhuman or because they were, you know, hey, these guys are the most moral tribe, so we're going to make them um, priests. They were chosen by the Lord. We don't know why he chose this, these folks, the, the, the Aaron and his sons and the tribe of Levi. We just know that he did. And as part of the ceremony to be set apart was this really awesome, awful uh, gruesome uh, ceremony involving sprinkling with blood. So the writer of Hebrews through revelation of the Holy Spirit made it very clear that the blood of animals has never taken away sin. It didn't take it away in the, the day that this was done in, in, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. And it also doesn't take it away today that, that the only thing that takes away sin is the blood of Jesus that the blood of Christ shed 2,000 years ago not only cleanses and covers my sin, but it also covered 
the sin of, of Aaron and his sons. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve and it goes all the way forward to however, however long you know, humans are on the face of the earth in a, um, that there will be the blood of Christ from that one event 2,000 years ago. That event uh, covers sin. But yet Yahweh took the people through that for the purpose of, took the, took the priests through that for the purpose of making a point that to be dedicated, to be completely His, was to be um, was to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus for obedience, for holiness. So, if you follow the progression of First Peter one two, he says, "You're elect, you're chosen, you're set apart by the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling with Jesus' blood." And I think the bottom line of this is that we are His, that He accepts us. That as we are, he, he accepts us. He accepts us and sprinkles us with his blood so that he can embrace us, so that he can draw us near. And because of that crazy love that he has for us, um, we, can, we can come near him in that, and be obedient to him. Um, you know, frankly, this really should make our hearts leap. And, I, I, you know, I think if it really gripped us the way it should, the way that logically it should, it would... I mean, we wouldn't be able to sit down. We'd be we'd be in a constant state of celebration. And I think, in part, the reason it doesn't um, cause our hearts to leap the way that we wish it would, that we could possibly be His. The reason I, I think it doesn't completely grip our hearts is that is that um, we don't fully appreciate the importance of what He's done for us. We don't fully uh, believe that sin and disobedience to God is really serious and really all that bad. So we kind of view, we tend to view sin as something that's less serious than God thinks of it. And so therefore, the fact that God forgives us and has made a way for us is like, um, it, we're kind of numb to it. It's not, not that big a deal. Yeah, great. That's terrific. Thank you, God. I'm really happy for that. But um, if we really understood sin in, this, in the way that God looks at it, I think that... Um, we would have a greater revelation of how precious this acceptance that he gives us is, how precious this love is that he pours out to us. And it would change us. And I just pray that it, you know, through even talking about this, it would begin to, to melt our hearts, to melt my heart, to melt your heart in this way. Um, the fact that we don't believe sin is all that serious is, serious can be, is evidenced in the way that we um, have objections to certain scriptures and the objections that we have, uh, they offend us. Um, so, for instance, you can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden when, when God gives Adam and Eve one, one commandment, um, don't eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and they violate that commandment, and then God comes down with a, a fury of judgment. And um, even though he, he loves them, he respects them, he gives them animals, animal skins to cover them, and, and even in that there's a picture of what Jesus would do, that death would cover, would cover their nakedness. Um, but regardless of that, he was very firm with them, and he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and says, you can't be here anymore, and then there were curses that came with that. And I often think that when we look at that, we think, well, you know, God, what is the big deal? I mean... It's, you know, just slap their hand and give them a do-over, tell them, hey, I really don't want you to do that again. But that's not, that's not how God viewed it. Um, you can look at the Sermon on the Mount, and one of the biggest, I think, messages of the Sermon on the Mount, or at least some that really impacts me, is that God views sin uh, in a very, very much deeper way than I do. Um, Jesus talks about not only you can't murder but you can't hate. And if you hate, you might as well murder because that's how he views it. Um, adultery is, is certainly, you know, most people frown upon adultery. But, but Jesus said, if you even look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery with her. And so we begin to see in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the big messages of it is that our sin is, is viewed as going so much deeper than we tend to think of it. It's, it's, da- it's, it's down in our core. It's in our bones. It's not just um, something that we, we do that is a poor choice or a mean thing, um, but it's like a cancer that's rooted in our DNA. 
and it corrupts and it stains everything from our thoughts to our words to our motives to our memories to our attitudes and our actions. It's 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 part of our our very core and it's sustain. Um, again, hang with me. This is the bad news. But if we don't appreciate the bad news um, of of how um, kind of God um, views our sin, then I don't think we can possibly understand how great the good news, the gospel, really is, and how and how we could view holiness. So if you can hang with me through kind of this hard news, this bad news, so to speak, about our sin. I think um, it'll be rewarded by a greater love and appreciation for what Jesus has done for us. So, um, one of the images that the Lord gave to me um, a few years ago, and there's been a few things that the Lord has taught me over the years that you know I, I know were directly from Him, and this is one of them. And it was a point in my life when, um, anyway, there was a lot going on, but um, one of the things the Lord wanted to convince me of is that he knew that I had uh, this stain in my very bones and he was he was willing to be near me despite it um, that it wasn't it wasn't um, it wasn't hidden from him and yet he was willing and the image he gave me which is not an image I would come up with because it's it's not fitting of my own imagination or um, my interests is is this imagery of of milk with dirt in it, and he told me that I was like dirty milk, and if I had I had if I took this glass of milk and I said okay yeah I'll, I would drink that sure, and I put a little bit of dirt in it even though I only put maybe one percent of the dirt in it I would never drink it again I would say oh it's ruined I will pour it out, and and whether it's one percent dirt or 50% dirt, it's still ruined. And what the Lord said to me is that is that you're like dirty milk. You view yourself as ruined, that 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 you're not that you're not something I'm interested in because you're dirty. But I'm not like you, and I want the milk. And I'm willing to take the dirty milk and get the milk out of it. And I know that sounds goofy language, but um what it communicated to me is that is that I can't I, there's no tweak I can do there's no overhaul I can do to get rid of the dirt it's in there it's ruined there's no way to recover the milk um, once that dirt is entered and my life is like that it's got this it's got dirt in it it's got this this stuff in my heart and my motives and my memories that 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 on the surface or in human human language are they ruin me and yet the Lord is not like me. And he is interested in me, and he is interested in having the milk. And what I do sometimes is I resist giving him the milk because I think, oh, I, I have dirt. You know, I have this dirt in me. And and he he's that's not how he is. He wants the milk. So we'll get back to that in a few minutes, but I, I do want, at least at this point, to say that if you can just kind of imagine that dirty milk and that nothing can fix it, um, nothing humanly can fix it. We can't um, tweak it or, or pour it through a white knuckle filter of some kind to get out the dirt. It is ruined. So the scriptures talk about this awful concept called the wrath of God. And it shows up um, in the scriptures about a hundred times, I'm told. Um, and which is a remarkable number of times compared to many other things that we tend to talk about. Um, we don't talk about the wrath of God much, um, and for good reason. It sounds awful, and it is awful. It's um, the white-hot anger of God directed and judging sin. And the wrath of God is is something that, that God... Um, that stirs in his heart and, and it comes out in judgment against sin. So Jesus and the, the prophets and the apostles, they all agree that I'm rotten to the core as far as I'm, I'm spoiled milk, I'm rotten milk or dirty milk. But am I hopeless? And the, the same, the same um, folks that have revelation, Jesus and the prophets and the apostles agree that yes, there is hope, and praise be to God, there is a crazy hope in Jesus. And this 
this spoilage, this rottenness that has entered my very core will not keep me from God. It will not doom me to the wrath of God because of what Jesus did. And so here's when we're doing this transition, this shift to the really good news, which is so really good because the really bad news was so really bad. So I'm going to read from Romans 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still dirty milk, Christ died for us. Since then, now we have been justified by his blood that we've been sprinkled with. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? I'll repeat that. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Yahoo! I mean, this is amazing stuff. What Paul says in this is, he he makes this amazing contrast, to me at least, between verse um, nine and verse eleven. So in verse nine, he says that that we he communicates that we were previously under the wrath of God. We were we were destined for the wrath of God, but we've been saved for it from it. And then he goes to verse eleven, and not only we've we been saved from it from the wrath of God, but now we're at a point where we can boast in God. So we're, instead of being under the wrath of God, we can boast in God. And the reason we can boast in God is that he has made us his. He has made us fully his. Not, um, you know, second class citizens, but fully his. He has accepted us, embraced us through Jesus. So you have to, you have to read this and you have to ask yourself the question, well, was it God's plan, you know, to have Jesus crucified and brutally killed the way he was so that his blood would be poured out? And the short answer is, yes, indeed, absolutely. Um, in, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah goes through, you know, that, did, that this prophetic statement about Jesus, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought, our, that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was Yahweh's will, it was Yahweh's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though Yahweh makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. He, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my, my righteous servant, Jesus, will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, because he does this, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors. He bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. So what what Isaiah is prophesying about here is that the Lord himself is going to crush this righteous servant and the reason he's crushing him is so that so that forgiveness can pour from this man onto many. Um, and that because the servant, this righteous servant, Jesus, is willing to do this, that he will be rewarded. And we're going to get to what that reward is in a few minutes. So at the end of the day, you've got to realize that, yes, there is dirt in the milk. It's awful. 
But your sins, our dirt, our sins are not bigger than God. Our sins are not bigger than God. So, if you can imagine um, the blood of Christ being put into that that cup of dirty milk, imagine that. Imagine the blood of Christ being put into that into that dirty milk. And when that happens, it doesn't mean the dirt just instantly disappears. It just means that that cup of dirty milk is now acceptable to the Lord. It doesn't mean that God doesn't that that God is okay with the dirt, it, but it means that that cup of dirty milk is acceptable to the Lord because what the Lord sees when he looks at it is the blood of his son. What the Lord sees is the blood of his righteous servant. He doesn't see the dirt. He sees the blood of his righteous servant. And that's the condition, at least I find myself, a cup of dirty milk with the blood of Christ sprinkled on me. And because of that, when the Lord looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus. He doesn't see this dirt that is, that is rumbling around in my very being, in my heart, my memories, my, my attitudes, my motives, my actions. So there's a couple of, I'll call them wrong attitudes about dirty milk that the Lord has, has, has rebuked me for. Um, some of them, one of them I've already mentioned. Um, but, um, the and the the two I'll call them wrong attitudes. The first is that um, people can take an attitude that I'm covered by grace, so the dirt doesn't matter. Um, so God doesn't God doesn't see the dirt anymore. He sees the blood of Jesus, so the dirt doesn't matter. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. And um, it's cheap in that we don't realize how expensive the blood of Christ was. We don't expen- we don't realize how expensive the grace was, the mercy that God has shown us. And I think what that communicates to God is when I say, you know what, I got this dirt in my heart, I got this dirt in my uh, my mind, my my actions. It's not really that big a deal because Jesus forgives me, and you know, no big deal. Is is what it does is it. I think it cheapens what the Lord has done. And it says to him, I don't value your sacrifice. I don't respect what you've done for me. Um, and I don't want anybody to be caught in that kind of setting where we don't show respect to the Lord. The second um, attitude that that I, I tend to be more prone to, just maybe because of my genetics or the way I was brought up, is that is that because there's dirt, I believe that God is not interested in intimacy with me. That that intimacy and experience of his Holy Spirit are for other people who are holy, that people who don't have any dirt in their lives or people who don't have as much dirt as I have in my life. And the Lord has just repeatedly confronted that lie in my life and said, I'm interested in you. Don't Don't pretend that the dirt's not there, but don't hold yourself back from me. Um... This shows, I, I try to interact with this, and I'll just be very transparent here. I, I interact with this every time I try to worship, because when I try to worship, the Lord invites me to give myself to him, and every time I, I begin to enter and I realize how dirty my milk is, and I begin to realize these attitudes, whether it be pride or lust or greed or these motives or things I've said that have been awful or things I've done that have been awful, and I can't possibly worship you, Lord, because I'm just, I'm just, you know, full of this dirt. And the Lord, the Lord reprimands me for that every time and, and, and rebukes the lie and says, give me the milk, give me the milk. And so in those settings, I try to just kind of throw myself over the threshold and say, okay, Lord, here's the milk. I'm not going to lie about the dirt. You know it, you see it. You paid for it with your blood, but I give you the milk. And I just try to throw myself into him um, as an act of my will, an act of obedience, an act of honor for the sacrifice that he's paid. If you're waiting for the dirt to be gone, it never will be, at least in this side of, of, of heaven. So don't wait. Just I, I just encourage you that, that he's bigger than the dirt. He's bigger than your sin. Throw yourself on his grace. Throw yourself into him and give yourself to him. So um, I think the right attitude that the Lord um, encourages in is, and this does agree, I believe, with the whole of Scripture, with the teachings of Jesus, the apostles and the prophets, is that holiness is working with God. 
to keep that dirt, to get it out of our lives and to keep it out of our lives, to have our minds renewed, to have our lives transformed so there's less and less and less of this dirt in us. And that when we do recognize, when, we're, when we have conviction of dirt, that we, that we confess it and we, we call it what it is and we reject it, but we don't let it keep us from the Father. That we press into him, knowing that we are his and that he is bigger than the dirt. <clears throat> I want to talk about a motive for holiness that um, we often don't talk about, but it's... Um, not the only motivation for holiness, I believe, but it is one, it's a place to start. And that's what I call the, or what the scriptures call the fear of the Lord. And I will call this reverential fear because I want to differentiate it between what most people think of when they think of fear. And that is uh, where someone is trying to manipulate you or, or, or cause you to, to, um, to do a thing that you are against and is not for your good. Um, and that I would call the fear of man. Um, when we when we when we are fearful of men, we make bad decisions. We should not make decisions out of fear of man. Whether that be a thing where I want to avoid a certain situation that I really should push myself into, whether it be you know I'm talking to someone about a hard having a hard conversation with someone, or you know sharing my faith at work, uh, or whatever but the fear of man is is very different from what the scriptures call the fear of the lord the fear of the lord as you guys i'm sure all know is that the, the in the proverbs and the psalms uh call the fear of the lord the beginning of wisdom if we if we don't fear god in a reverential way where we recognize who he is this awesome creator of the universe who who breathed into existence the entire universe and all the universes that are were made by him by his will by his word if we don't fear that person with a reverential fear, we're fools. Um, there are good, re- good other examples of reverential fear, I think, that are at least close to this, are um, that reverential fear being fear that keeps us in the way of righteousness, it keeps us in the way of holiness, would be, um, maybe a, a, an example might be if I, I, don't, I don't play, uh, I don't have a ball game or a baseball game on the turnpike, um, because I'm smart enough to know that, that, that that is a dangerous place and a very dangerous place. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to test the waters there and think that I can, can run out in traffic without being killed. If I'm on the edge of the Grand Canyon walking around, there's a reverential fear that comes over me when I'm in the, I'm in the presence of something that could take my life if I misstep. And so I'm going to walk carefully and inten- intentionally. Um, where I place my feet. And that's as close as I can get you to what I think reverential fear is, where we, where we take steps because there's a genuine reason to, to make decisions based on that, that fear that um, is bigger than we are, is bigger than anything we could possibly know. Um, and the prophets and the apostles who gave us the scriptures all agree from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation that a reverent fear of God is appropriate and will keep you in life. Um, in 1 Peter 1, if you guys could return to that if you have your Bibles open, 1 Peter 1, verse 13 to 19, I'll read this very familiar scripture. Verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you will be holy because I am holy. And if, I, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through your time of exile knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways of life, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a, bl- a lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So I'm going to read that verse 17 through 19 again. And if you call on him who fathers, try it again. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to everyone's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of life inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And what Peter is saying here is realize if realize that God is going to judge you according to your deeds. He's speaking to Christians here. And we are to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. So, and the reason we're to do that is that we were purchased with the blood of Christ. And if we, if we think, if we take that as being cheap and we don't respect that and our lives don't reflect that we're trying to respect that, then we will give an account to this, the God of, the God of the universe. Um, Peter's not the only one who says this in the New Testament and I'm just going to focus on the New Testament because um, we tend to think that this is all Old Testament type teaching, but it's not. Um, Paul in Philippians says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have already always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, I don't fully, I don't understand that that phrase fully, but but I do think it, it, it communicates Paul saying, "You're not playing games here. This is serious business. Your salvation is it needs to be handled with fear and trembling." Um, the writer of Hebrews makes a very similar statement in Hebrews two three. He's talking about um, the uh, the fact that we have now had the Son of God himself revealed to us and, and that we have been spoken to by the Son of God himself. Not, not just a prophet, not an angel, but the Son. And the writer of Hebrews says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And what, the, what that says to me is, if, if we don't take this seriously, what God has done for us through his own son, the blood that he has poured, for, poured out for us, if we don't take it seriously, what hope do we have when we stand before God who has paid an amazing high price for us? So there's this idea that the fear of the Lord is the, is the, the beginning of wisdom. And I thoroughly believe that. But what I want to challenge you with is that I don't believe that the fear of the Lord is meant to be the end of Wisdom. I don't believe the fear of the Lord is the la- is the highest motivation for love for obeying God and and for living a holy life. I believe that love is, and I'm going to try to make that case uh, for you in the, just a few more for a few more minutes. So, fear of the Lord is a wise place to start, but um, it is not where the, God wants us to end up. He wants us to love Him passionately. And be loved by him. He is passionate in his love for us. And there's plenty of scriptures for this. Um, but the the scripture the the scriptures are full of of what I'll call um, relationship metaphors, meaning that you know we can't possibly understand how to have how to have a relationship with the God of the universe, the, the the Creator Himself. How do we how does you know how do our little our little pea brains you know wrap themselves around that concept? And so from, from Genesis through Revelation, the scripture is full of all sorts of analogies, metaphors, <coughs> excuse me, uh, for, um, to, to help us understand that. There's the, the metaphor of, of father, that God is our father, we are sons and daughters. And Jesus spoke frequently of that and encouraged us to trust and, and, and love God as a father, a good father. And that should motivate us through love. Um, the New Testament talks frequently about that that we as the church are are the the temple of the Holy Spirit that He dwells among us He lives in us as His temple and that that that's an image that's a metaphor that helps us imagine what it's like when, the, when to have God Himself through His Spirit living among us and in us and moving through us as His temple. But the metaphor that I, I want to focus on in the, in the next few minutes is a metaphor that m- many of us are kind of uncomfortable with and is a metaphor that is, it goes all the way back to, to the Old Testament, really, with Israel. And then, and then Paul picks it up again and extends it in the New Testament. And it's something that, that, um, 
has been, I think, I think God has been speaking over the last um, few decades in, in higher and higher amounts. I think it's a metaphor that he wants us to begin to think in. I think he, wa- he wants to, to extend this metaphor and, and to revitalize this church through it. And that's the metaphor that we are the bride of Christ. Um, the uh, scriptures speak frequently about, um, in the Old Testament, I should say, the prophets would often refer to Israel as, as this bride this this um, one that that God had wanted to wed or had wed, and and they were calling Israel back um, to God and and called them you know they were, when when Israel would sin they referred to it as an adulterous relationship that with the, Israel would have with Baal and such and that language implies that Israel was married to God, and um, and then Paul picks that up in the New Testament uh, in even more intimate language and um, the first one. I will read, I'll just read a, just a phrase of it, but it, it's from Ephesians 5, and this is a section that we're familiar with, where wives submit yourselves to your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, etc. But in this passage, that Paul is telling that the wives to love their husbands and respect the husbands just as, as the church should, should love and respect God, um, excuse me, Christ, and it's telling the husbands to love, their, love the wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, and then down in verse um, verse uh, 32, Paul says something that he that well, excuse me, I'll start in verse 31. Therefore, if a man shall leave, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So. Paul is talking about this relationship that goes on, and then and then he he takes the next step and says, is it's 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 a it's a relationship of oneness that that even just as the as as a man and a woman become literally one flesh, in in sexual intercourse and and this oneness that they this intimacy they know in that, in the same way, this this is this refers to Christ and the church that this oneness this intimacy is what Christ wants for his or what Christ deserves with his church, that this respect, this intimacy, this closeness, and that was supposed to be a picture for us of what, what God wanted for his son um, in, in giving his son the church as his bride. Paul um, also speaks of this in 2 Corinthians, and in this, in this section he talks about it as if we're, we're betrothed, engaged to God, to Jesus. And he says in uh, verse 2 and 3 of, of, first, of uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he said, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That was verse 2. So in this passage, Paul is saying, I view you as, as a pure virgin, that I have betrothed, I've engaged you to Christ. And he's telling them this as a motivation for them to stay pure and chaste for Christ. That when we see Christ, we would be, that, that we would be given to him in purity. You know, and humanly speaking, we would, um, well, let me say one, one other little thing about that is, is that basically what Paul is saying is that, is that, is that the church is going to be presented to Christ as a bride. Um, John in the book of Revelation, you know, has some metaphors that try to talk about the, the, the church and the bride of Christ and, and all of this. And there's all kinds of language in there that I don't fully understand. But, but what is clear is that there's going to be a wedding feast. And, um, through the revelation to Paul and, and the others, the other apostles, and I think even all back in the prophets of the Old Testament, is that Christ will marry his church. And, and, and if you can't think of it any other way, realize that we are his reward. We are Jesus's reward. We are the reward for his suffering. We are the reward that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 53, that, that because he was willing to do this, I will give him, I will give him a reward. And we are a part of that reward. You and I are a part of that reward. Hebrews 12:2 says, um, the writer of Hebrews says, focus on Yeshua, Jesus the source and goal of our faith. He saw the joy ahead of him, so he endured the cross and he ignored the disgrace it brought him. Then he received the highest position in heaven, the one next to the throne of God. And it's talking about Jesus 
being seeing the joy before him when he was in the garden of gethsemane wrestling with the father about what he had to do he didn't want to do it but he saw this joy set before him and a portion of that joy is you and i that we would be presented to him so using that metaphor think about a human um, engagement if we were engaged if we met some people that were engaged and and they were um they say hey i got engaged this weekend and um and and it's terrific. I'm really happy for this, but I, I think I, I really I just want to play around or sleep around. I'm really not interested in keeping myself pure for this person, but I guess I will because you know I don't want to get caught, and you know I'm going to look bad if I get caught. And maybe I'll get you know in trouble with with my parents or whatever. You know we would we would find that dis, a disgusting attitude, frankly, um, because what we innately know is right is that when we are engaged. And, and we are, we, we have promised ourselves to someone. And as we promised ourselves to some, someone, we want to, we want to focus on that person and be so enamored with that person and rec, and looking forward to the day when we'll be united with that person that we do everything we can to keep ourselves in purity for that person. That we are not going to have an attitude that takes sin lightly or lightly or takes, um, things that would displease our loved one lightly. Because our highest goal is to be is to give ourselves to that person, and that kind of um, and that kind of hope and that kind of um, behavior is is completely appropriate in an earthly relationship, but it's also appropriate in our relationship with Christ. That because we are uh, a part of the bride of Christ, we are engaged to Jesus, and that is a is an crazy. Think about it. We've gone from from being rotten to the core because of the sin that just fills fills our DNA practically we've been we've gone from that to being that God is going to give us to his son as his reward for his bride and that complete flip-flop of 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 our we've gone from the wrath of God to the bride of Christ and that um that change of events that change of destinies is it it ought to motivate us to move towards purity and holiness and being set apart because we are his. When we put a ring on our finger that says we're married or we're engaged, that's saying I belong to someone else. And and just as is I have a ring on my finger that says I belong to my wife Cindy, in the same way I have a ring on my heart that says I belong to Jesus. He has paid for me. I belong to him. And that ought to motivate me. That ought to change the way I look at sin in my life, change my, change the way I, I, I think about um, things and the way I act. So in, in closing, I just want to um, encourage you that, that the bad news is really bad, but, um, that we are, that we are, um, that the sin in our lives is much worse than we, than we would like to think. Um, additionally, the sin in our life is is way beyond um, um, be fixing. We cannot possibly fix it. But what's so amazing is that Jesus has come, and through God being bigger than our sin, He has He has poured His blood into our cup of dirty milk, so to speak, and we are and we are now beautiful to Him. He is bigger than the dirt. He is bigger than the sin. And he just calls us to give ourselves to him and to, yes, to set it, to set aside dirt, to, to not let dirt enter, to give him the dirt that's in there and say, please purify me. But, but he's not, he's, he's for us. He's not against us. So, um, I'm going to close with just a few, I think, practical things that people can do. Um, and I always think of the scripture in Mark 9 where, G, where this man says to G, Jesus says, do you think I could do this for you? And do you believe me? And, and, and this man says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, comma, help my unbelief. So we're this mixture of belief and unbelief. And, so what do we do with that? What 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 can we do instead of waiting for God to hit us with a holy stick and make us holy? What can we do that moves our moves us towards him? That responds to his touch, that responds to his nudge, that responds to his drawing us. So I I'm just going to give you three things and and then I'll I'll close. So one is uh repent and I repent daily. <laughs> make a U-turn in your thoughts and your actions and your words daily. Just 
every time that the Lord um, brings something to your heart and your attention, deal with it. Um, when he points out the dirt, deal with it. So repent. God knows everything. He loves you and he wants you to come home just like the prodigal son's father wanted him to come home. Second, repent is first. Second, trust him. I mean, trust him. Entrust yourself to him. Invite God to do whatever it takes to complete his good work in your life. Invite God to do whatever it takes to complete his good work in our life. We tend not to trust him fully. We yeah, I trust you as long as you stay over on that side of the room or as long as you don't touch this. Just tell the Lord, no, come, Lord, do whatever you have to do. Um, be bold and pray to this one who loves you more than anybody in the world. Pray to him that he would be able to, that he would do whatever it takes to draw you, to draw you into the good work that he's doing in your life. And finally, choose him. Choose him. Make choices that nurture your love for him. Make choices that align your heart with his. Um, Cindy and I host a prayer meeting on Tuesday nights. And in large part, we host it, I'd say the primary focus or the primary reason we host it is to nurture love in our lives for him, to nurture loves, to nurture a, a love relationship um, for Jesus and for the Father and for the Spirit. And that takes time and we have to choose it. We have to choose him when, when he, when he, 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 puts us in a situation and says, do you want me or do you want this thing more? We have to choose him. And I, I would just encourage you, if those three things. So repent, whatever he's shown you, repent of it. Second, uh, trust him, really trust him. Just push yourself into that trust. And, and third is choose him. And I think if you do those things, it will greatly accelerate what the Lord does in your life and things that, that might take um, you know, 10 years can happen in a year if you're willing to do those things in an active um, participant kind of way. So I'll just close by just uh, saying congratulations. Um, you are you are his. You belong to him. Uh, he loves you and has done everything he can to show you that in, in, in immense um, immense fashion uh, through Jesus and what Jesus has done for you on the cross for giving his spirit to you to literally live in you so that you can be sanctified and 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 filled with him and aligned with the heart of God. So I'll, I'll close with prayer. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you did. I thank you so much that that I am yours, that I belong to you. I thank you so much that that these listeners, these folks who are are um, hearing these words that they that they belong to you they've been they've given themselves to you and they are long to be closer to you and i pray god that by your holy spirit that you would come in in powerful fashion and that you would keep capturing our hearts and you would keep nurturing love as we try to nurture love you would nurture love as well and that we would we would fall in deeper and deeper love and intimacy with you god we just reject the lies that the enemy wants to put in our head that we are that we are, uh, that there is no dirt, or that, or that the dirt doesn't matter, or that the dirt is too is bigger than you are. And we just reject those lies in Jesus' name, and we recognize that you are bigger than everything, including the dirt in our lives, and that you long for us to be near you. And so we say yes to you. We say yes to your work in our lives, and we welcome your work in Jesus' name. Amen.